0: This episode of GT The Podcast is supported by Alcon.
1: This is Ike Ahmed. And I'm Arsham Shabani. And we want to welcome you to GT The Podcast. We're bringing this to you together with BMC and
0: Glaucoma Today.
1: To offer audible insights into current topics in glaucoma care.
0: Presented by the authors of our latest, most read GT articles. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of Survey Says with Dr. Paul Singh, a special edition of GT the Podcast, in which Dr. Singh presents a real patient case from his practice and asked his guests to weigh in on how they would manage it. Today's episode features Dr. Shamil Patel and Manjul Shaw. First, the panel will discuss how they would treat the patient in question, a woman with bioglaucoma who wants to undergo cataract surgery. What is the best approach to procedure and IOL well selection for the patient? Later, they find out how their colleagues chose to proceed based on the results of a poll of glaucoma today's audience conducted on social media. Tune in to Survey Says with Paul Singh.
2: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Survey Says. I'm Paul Singh, uh, glaucoma and anterior segment surgeon out here in southeastern Wisconsin, and truly honored to be with two great friends, surgeons. Uh, educators, uh, just the coolest people in the world. I can't wait to talk to uh, Shama Patel and Banjul Shah, who I'm going to have them introduce themselves in a second. Uh, but I want to just uh, kind of explain what this whole podcast is all about. Survey Says is really a fun, to me, one of my most favorite podcasts because it's really real life discussions on what we see and, and, and do every day, right? So we basically take a real life case or scenario and we submit it to all the different social media platforms And to have all you guys out there, our colleagues, just comment on what you would do to some questions. You know, what what kind of case is it? You know, how would you treat the patient, et cetera. And then we here as a panel will talk about the case and then talk about the results. And what does that mean in real life practice? And what are some of the kind of implications to all those? So it's really real life and fun. And and we're going to have some great times here because we have two cool people here. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves first. Shambhal, tell us about who you are and where you're from, my friend.
1: Uh, my name is Shamal Patel. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm doing glaucoma anterior segment just like Paul. I've uh, been lucky to spend a lot of time with these two guys over the past few years. So, looking forward to learning from both of you today.
2: Awesome. Awesome. And of course, Manjul, what's up? What are you up to nowadays, man? <laughs> where are you at? I, I, am, uh, I don't
3: even know where I'm at right now. Manjul Shah, I am. Uh... I guess by the time by the time we air, I'll probably be uh, at uh, NYU in the middle of Manhattan, which is a big change from the Midwest, which is where I'm currently uh, based. Uh, uh, and again, uh, echoing Shamil, awesome to hang out with you guys.
2: Yeah, man. You guys are so much fun to hang out with. We were at IC, IGC recently, and we were down in Panama together doing some cases. And, you know, that's what's so much fun about glaucoma now and just in ophthalmology, just the, the interaction, the friendships were created with all you know all of you guys and, and the, the constant evolution and, and kind of push to keep moving forward, which, which is so much fun. And it's all because of people like you guys. So I, you guys stimulate me and excite me to keep going and move forward and hopefully it's vice versa as well. And, and today we're going to have some fun because uh, we're talking about a case. I'm actually going to introduce the case and, and just kind of spell it out again for everybody. And then I'm going to have you guys just comment on a couple key things in this case, and then we can kind of talk about the audience and the results from the different polls as well. So the case is basically a 66-year-old woman with three-year history of P-O-A-G on LaTanapross QHS, Pressures is kind of the middle teens. The T-Max is a middle tougher 20s, so not super high pressures, but middle t- 20s. Did have SLT about two and a half years ago. Had some response, was able to get off a of one drop, was on Timolol in the past as well, and got off Timolol, but still had to be on a PGA at nighttime. Using preservative-free tears and actually t- topical cyclosporine because significant dry eye issues, complain of fluctuating vision, having a hard time driving at night, things like that as well. She's actually a mild hyperope. I mean, I don't know, Manju, if you know about hyperopes at all, but <laughs> she's a she's a latent hyper rope, actually, about a plus one twenty-five. A little bit of mixed, said about a about a diopter and a half of some cylinder against the rule. And uh, and so she's really saying, hey, look, my vision's coming to go, my vision's gone down now recently. Now she glares down, and bats down about 2060, has a hard time driving at night. And uh, her OCT is pretty healthy on the RNFL, and but yet she does and she has healthy fields. But her GCC has some slight changes in both eyes, the ganglion cell complex, and her hysteresis is kind of low, 8.8 and 9. So here's a problem. She's got pretty much mild, mild glaucoma on visual fields, pretty normal fields. She has pretty healthy RNFL, but decreased GCC slightly. Low hysteresis, has an early cataract and dry eye, some astigmatism, and wants to undergo cataract surgery. And so really, my question to you guys is, in general, right? What what kind of procedure? So what what are you trying to achieve in this person? So she's saying, I really want to be independent of glasses for distance and computer. I'll wear glasses to read if I have to. She's not like anti-wearing glasses for reading over the counter, but she likes to be distance and intermediate at least, minimum. So what are you thinking in this kind of patient, both on a procedure uh, and kind of IOL to give her that intermediate and distance range of vision? What are you guys thinking so far? Uh, Shama, why don't you kind of take us for this one?
1: Yeah, so I think a few points. Starting off from a glaucoma standpoint, she's mild, reasonably well controlled, but will need control kind of for her future. Um, And so she's a slight hyperope, so the cataract surgery will help a little bit, but probably not enough. Um, And then you add on the fact that she already has surface issues and is requiring a pharmaceutical for that. So in the ideal world, we would be able to achieve some sort of pressure control reduction maintenance without a topical medication. Um, and then combine that with the cataract surgery. Um, From a cataract surgery standpoint, you know, I think we'll go through the IOL options, but she is a slight hyperope, so there'll be a slight reduction there. Um, And then she would be a good candidate for the astigmatic correction. Um, But I think, fortunately, she's well controlled on the glaucoma standpoint, so we have options. But we would want to consider the fact that if we can avoid topical treatments, then we can do her a service in terms of revision stability long term. So, you
2: know, I mean, so Majul, in general, if anybody comes in with, is curious, anybody comes in with glaucoma on a drop, no matter how mild they are, are you always saying if they have an open angle of some sort, are you always going to offer some type of MIGS procedure on these patients? Is it like a, just a no-brainer or do you, do you ever like not do a MIGS procedure, just do a cataract surgery alone? Just curious.
3: You know, barring kind of weird contraindications, angle anomalies and whatnot. I think the evidence is pretty good in favor of the safety of MIGS procedures. Um, And we're, we're starting to see more and more longer term data in terms of efficacy. Um, And so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I mean, I hate to say universal, but almost all the time I'm advocating in favor of a MIGS procedure. If not, uh, for again the the med reduction and longevity of pressure reduction compared to controls, we also see a reduced, a significantly reduced risk in in the perioperative and immediate postoperative IOP uh, spike issue, which we know in, in in glaucoma patients is a real concern. Uh, and if it's high enough and their nerve is fragile enough, that could be you know. Visually uh, catastrophic in rare situations. So, um, if anything, we're providing safety over the first 24 hours. And again, I think more and more data showing long term uh, efficacy with really no uh, safety consideration. So,
2: yeah. So she's, she's on a PG 8 nighttime only, right? She's got some dry eye issues in general, but either one of you, Shemel, would you at, take this one first? Do you feel like there's a huge benefit just getting people off of one medication? Because I hear it all the time, well, yeah, just one med, is there a really big deal? How much of an impact in your personal experience do you feel like getting someone off of one medication like a PGA is on quality of life and also stability of their glaucoma?
1: Well, I think, I think for this particular medication, it's a big deal. Um, some of the medications that may not have as many topical side effects, let's say just like Timolol. Um, may not have as much of an impact when you remove that from the surface treatment, but we know there's a systemic impact to that. Um, but I think anytime you can remove medication burden from a patient, you're you're going to improve the long-term quality of the treatment of their disease because you take adherence out of the equation. Um, and so, and from a clinical standpoint, I mean, you see patients that have a significant improvement, especially in Phoenix, dry eyes is such a big problem. That taking patients off the topical uh, pharmaceuticals has a huge benefit to their vision stability um, so i agree with my if i look for reasons not to do migs on patients that have amenable angles and oftentimes the only people that stop me are the insurance companies um, but you, you don't get resistance from anywhere else except for the insurance companies typically um, but i think taking patients off medications is is an excellent idea, and from a pathophysiological standpoint, we're doing a better job treating the disease when we reinvigorate that outflow pathway. Uh, We get more stability, we'll get more stability in the pressure, and I think as we see better 24-hour measurement capability, we'll see that these outflow procedures are doing a lot more than we think.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, Manjul, your thoughts on you know, does the quality of vision and quality of life? I mean, there are data sets that we actually were part of. We published a paper along with Tom Samuelson and others showing that even with the ISAT inject, the pivotal trial, showing a better improved quality of life scores, PRO improvement with cataract stent versus cataract alone, or better OSDI scores. I mean, the study showed us longevity, five year data, you know, less visual field progression, et cetera. I mean, do you see a clinical uh, impact in terms of getting someone off a of medication? And is that your definition of success sometimes? Is it, is it just IOP now? and medication or how do you define success in terms of medication burden
3: yeah i mean that the, it's, it's almost gotten harder to define success because in the old days it's it, you went into the or with this pressure and you come out with this pressure and if it's not if it's not going down you, you're a failure um now it's it's uh you know it's it's more multifactorial which is great i think from when we're when we're looking at uh, the patient's perspective um there's no doubt about the fact that patients are happier. Um, even stopping one one drop one time a day is a daily reminder that you have this this very scary disease that could take your vision when 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 you need it the most uh, in in five years, ten years, twenty years. Uh, so that's that's a daily reminder, and that's assuming that's assuming your patient is actually taking their drops, right? And and we know that even with a single single drop a day, adherence rates are pretty scarily low, right? 60, 70% in some studies, even lower. Um, and so, yeah, not only are we achieving a, a, a qualitatively better uh, method of, of uh, controlling the glaucoma, but you know, just that daily reminder um, that you have this condition and just getting rid of that is, is huge. It's a huge burden that you can uh, lift off of a patient's shoulders.
2: Yeah, I think it's important to recognize for all those out there, you know, we talk about success, you know, it's not just IOP in general. Like, for instance, I have had patients where the pressure was 13 or 14 on a PGA and they're 16 off a PGA after a MIGS procedure. But guess what? they're off that drop. <laughs> so if they're 2 points higher but they're off the medication, I'm not worried about fluctuation as much the surface or toxicity, not worried about that, you know, potential for compliance issues. To me that's still a benefit and so I think that's kind of how we have to really weigh that, you know. I would yeah. argue that that 13
3: or 14 on meds, yeah, there if if we had the ability, if we had telemetry and we could see that 13 or 14 is 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 probably 13 plus or minus 4 or 5 versus 16 plus or minus 1. You know, and that's that's going to be a, we don't have the data yet, but that's going to prove itself, I'm sure, uh, to, to have a huge disease modifying effect.
2: So, so with that said, so we've kind of established that we think MIGS is a, is a good option for this patient and for most patients who are, have glaucoma and have an amenable angle uh, for this kind of patient. So she's mild. She's on one PGA. Uh, what are your thoughts on the type of MIGs? You don't have to give the exact names of products, but just overall, would you do a stenting kind of procedure? Would you do a dilating procedure uh, with the cataract? Would you do a, let's say goniotomy? Would you combine them? Love to hear your thoughts on how you think about that whole decision tree. If you want to, maybe when you'll go ahead and take this one first.
3: In this person, er, you know, early, mid sixties, latent in you know, our, our classic teaching is angle closure is, you know, mu- they they have much more hyperopia or they're going to present earlier or whatever. Uh, absolutely, I think we all have this exact patient profile in our practices, and when you do good quality dark room uh, gonioscopy, you actually find that they, this, this is angle closure. So I think that's like a key uh, point to to sort of uh, you know sort of differentiate. Now, nevertheless, if if there is some concern for angle closure, it makes me feel better. Uh, that the that the cataract alone is gonna do some heavy lifting, but I will still uh, opt for some sort of an angle-based procedure because of the low hysteresis, because of the early changes, and the medication requirement that the patient has. And again, we want to we want to you know kind of optimize
2: this eye forever. Ideally, it'd be great if we never have to go back in. So this patient did have open angles even many years ago. Um, and now is open angle. She had SLT done, so she's more of a latent hyperopia But her axial length is, you know, like 23, and she has Ks that are normal, so she's not really, a, a, you know, significant risk factor for angle closure. But she did have, she does have hyperopia in general. So, um, but yeah, with that said, go ahead.
3: Yeah. So with that said, yeah, assuming we have good, good, uh, good room to work, I, I'm a big fan of stenting the canal. Um, at the time of cataract surgery, it's, you know, I mean, part of this is governed by insurance and it's kind of our only shot at goal right now. Um, but, uh, you know, again, we have good data. We don't have to worry about wound healing considerations per se. Um, and we can, it, it generally
2: doesn't close the door
3: to other angle-based procedures down the road if we ever do need to go back in.
2: Sean, what are your, th- what are your thoughts on, what's your first thought for this patient MIGS-wise?
3: No, I
1: I agree with Majul. I think the stenting procedures kind of fit this patient perfectly because they're able to develop that moderate control. Uh, We've seen with the MIGs, they all all can get us to about the mid-teens. We couldn't really expect them to get much lower than that. Um, And in this particular patient, her vision stability and her vision quality is a big deal for her. So I'd also want to avoid any types of MIGs procedures that have an increased risk of heme or take a longer time to heal in the post-operative period. And in my experience, goniotomies tend to have a little bit more reflux um, than I'd like in this patient. So I'd probably steer away from that one at least. Um, Canaloplasty still has that risk because you do have to make that automy, but I think they're getting small enough to where I don't really think of heme reflux as a concern. Um, But in this particular patient, I think the the eye stent is very simple, uh, very low risk, very low risk of heme issues. Um, so I'd probably lean towards a s- small stenting type procedure.
2: Yeah, recovery time is important as well for a lot of these patients, and, and time to that you know re- re- um, to that functional vision that they want is is, is important as well. And the hyphemas, you know, you can mitigate the risk by hyperpressurizing the eye in the in case, and obviously de- slowly decompressing it. But uh, but you're right, the, the goniotomies do have a little bit higher. trabeculotomies have a higher risk for sure. In terms of combination, so there's been a, you know a lot of noise now. I've been part of that noise, I guess, but combining viscodilation with stenting and, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Would this be the right patient for that? Or do you, first of all, do you guys do combination MIGs in general and for, or forget the reimbursement for a second, just the in general, do you guys do that? Number two is, do you think this case or what cases would be a good case for that combo? So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think we're going to increasingly get more and more
3: evidence in support of combo MIGs. And I think what, We've all there's there's been a little bit uh, published on on sort of inflow outflow ECP plus stenting and things of that nature, but I think you're probably referring to combo canal based uh, MIGs typically, sort of like a canal dilation plus stenting or something like that. Um, And while we don't have great evidence there, I think it makes sense. I typically reach for that combo uh, in folks who have a, a little bit of a higher med burden. Um, you know, in, in this patient who only has one drop um, and is well controlled on that single agent, um, I don't know that we necessarily need to reach for that extra gun. But it's nice to know that we could do it down the road. And again, with micro uh, uh procedures, we, we can always go back in later and, and enhance the canal
2: function. What are your thoughts, Shyamal? Great points. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No, I've definitely used uh, the micro sensing and the visco dilation together on patients that uh, I agree with Manjul have a higher medication burden, um, or have a little bit more advanced disease, where we're shooting for that sub fifteen range, and maybe they're still going to use a medication to get under twelve. Um, so a little bit more aggressive goals or more control goals, and I think it does have 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 long term value. Um, because once you do the viscodilation, you've created a space for the flow, but you have to maintain that flow over time. And we already know this patient has a fibrotic potential in their meshwork. So if we can put a stent that maintains that flow, then you may not lose that patency over time. So I think it is going to be a very important. um, It'll be a long-term solution that we will implement more, but I think the challenge is going to be it's also going to be a long-term data request. So we'll have to follow these patients for an extended period of time to actually tease out those differences.
2: Yeah, no, I think you guys are absolutely spot on it. And that's kind of how I utilize the combo mix as well. When I have someone who's on multiple medications, uh, kind of like my surrogate for kind of resistance to outflow. We don't have a great understanding of, you know, which patients have a high resistance to outflow severity versus, you know, severity and disease, which is based upon fields, but What's their resistance severity? We don't know. But, you know, the number of medications, longevity of the glaucoma uh, drops they've been on, as well as, let's say, failed SLT. You know, I did some work early on showing us that, you know what, when you have failed SLT, there's a higher risk that some of these stents may not work as well, let's say, like the I-Stent and the G1, at least. Or if they have a number of medications, there might be some resistance beyond just the TM. And especially if they've been on medications for years, we know toxicity does cause more atrophy of the TM and more fibrosis as well as the distal collector channels as well. So for the fact that this patient, I agree with you guys, that this patient has only been on meds for two and a half years, three years. She's mild. Her SLT did have some effect, which means there's probably some distal collector channel functionality. I think that this makes sense to say, let's just focus on the stents. It's clean, in and out. And quick recovery as well. So, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I think there are no right or wrong here. And if you're someone who believes in let's just open up the canal to be safe and put the stents, I think there's never a negative that way. Of course, financial burden and, of course, the reimbursement issues are there. But I think it's always a good option there as well. And, you know, people still, there are some people doing, you know, and the cycle photocoagulation in the combination. The ICE procedure, I think, is still valuable for some people. But I do reserve that more for those people on multiple medications. So, great points here, guys. Let's talk about the IOL. So, we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do some type of stenting hypothetically, or if you want to do a goniotomy too, whatever, either way, you're going to get that hope of that patient's pressure in the middle teens, which is her target range, get her awfully off of that PGA. What lens are we going to put in this eye? i we going to put, she has a about a diapter and a half. So my question to you is, do you believe toric lenses are valuable in glaucoma patients, first of all? Manjul, yes. what do you think? Yes, yes,
3: without a doubt, yes. The only reason I would hesitate to do a toric lens is if I thought this patient was in imminent need of a trabeculectomy. Uh, that's, that's really the only glaucoma procedure we have that has an effect on astigmatism. Um, and so, I mean, and this includes uh, subconj, microstenting, and even uh, in limited data, uh, even tube shunts are, are relatively astigmatically neutral. So the only thing that that's going to play a role uh, potentially is a TRAB. Um, and I don't see this patient, granted, again, the, uh, you, you never know, but I don't see this patient going down the TRAB route anytime soon. Um, and so, yeah, for sure, I think I think there's great uh, value add to treating the astigmatism. The one thing that concerns me is that she has some pretty significant dry eye issues. And so I just want to make sure that we're getting good quality biometry and uh, topography uh, to, to do our... our our optimal uh, IOL planning.
0: This episode of GT, the podcast is supported by Alcon. Really good point. Well, I want to get back to that too, because I want to see
2: what you guys do in that situation. But thank you for bringing that up. We're going to to talk about that. Shama, what are your thoughts on on astigmatism in glaucoma patients in general?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable doing astigmatism on many patients, including those that have filters and may need a filter. Because I really think about how much vision we can capture for them. And if, if like Manjewel said, we have an imminent trabeculectomy, maybe it's not worth it. But even our trabeculectomies, we've gotten techniques where we have less and less astigmatic issues with them. And so I feel comfortable that astigmatism correction is a very important quality of life issue. And I think with the proper explanation with the patient, we tend to use uh, toric lenses in any glaucoma patient without reserve. Unless it's a, you know a regular and not a good candidate in general.
2: So what if, what if someone says, yeah, but guys, what if someone's like a more moderate, close to severe glaucoma, would you still do a toric lens in a more moderate, even almost severe patient? Sure. Yeah. 100%. Again, I think yeah. that's, yeah. that's yeah. I'm like, yes, man, maximize whatever ganglion cells are left, man. Get that vision, whatever they can see, maximize the quality as much as you can, man. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the low hanging fruit is toric lenses uh, and it'd be under, underutilized in glaucoma. But in general, I think just we utilize toric lenses in, in general. Do you guys do LRIs or arcuits at all? with the you know, manual or arc or laser s- assisted
1: i do with the femto laser
2: what is your cutoff for doing manual uh, let's say arc cornea like arcuate or lris versus toric lenses is there a number that you have in general no i mean i think a part of it
3: is also is is the patient able to you know play ball with a toric lens is are they gonna be able to afford it etc that's that unfortunately becomes uh a part of the criteria because an LRI, I can just sneak one of those in and, and, uh, we're fine. Um, and then again, if we're, if we're getting to those low, uh, low, uh, astigmatism numbers, something where like a, a a T2 kind of, uh, uh, power Toric lens would be called for, and we just don't have that in the States, then sure we can, we can do a little, little tune up there.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have you know lenses out there. Some, there's a 125, and l BNL has one, and, and you know, there's 150s from other companies as well. But yeah, 125 can treat about 0.75 against the rule. So if I have against the rule, if I if okay. I even mean, might flip the axis by point 0.1 us say to, to with the rule, I'm like, yeah, sweet. <laughs> so yeah, I try, especially in this kind of phase with dry eye, I try to minimize any kind of corneal LRIs or arcades just because she already has dry eye. And you're going to cause more symptomatic dry eye issues postoperatively. So we can do a toric lens, especially with this patient with a diopter half against the rule. I think it makes a lot of sense. So with that said, toric lens makes a lot of sense if the patient can afford it, of course. Now, what kind of toric lens? So we got some, we got some options now, man. We got some, you know, EDOFs. We got some monofocal plus, what you want to call them now? Uh, we also have, you know, aspheric lenses are great. We also have you know, multifocals, and I know some doctors are doing multifocals in glaucoma patients. So before we address this lady here directly, are you guys doing EDOFs or multifocals in patients who are glaucoma? And if so, what are your criteria?
1: Um, no, I've done a little bit of both in glaucoma patients, but I'm very conservative with them. Um, and so most of the patients have to be very well controlled. And for my multifocal patients, they have to really want that near, near vision without glasses. And there's very few people in my patient population that want that, but I have done that in two patients that I recall. Um, But it's a long discussion with them about how it can affect the quality of their glaucoma testing, how it can affect their glare, and how it can have additional side effects for them. And so I've steered away from multifocals for patients that want extended range and lean towards more of the extended depth of focus lenses. I I still think, I don't know if they've done all the visual field testing on it because I still think it should have some effect on the testing parameters, but I think symptomatically for the patient, it's not as much of an issue. And then actually there's there's a couple, I can't remember what they're called because I don't want to use the name, but the ones that have a little more spherical aberration to give you a little more range to your vision, I think those are perfectly safe to use in our glaucoma patients because they won't affect our testing in any way. They just have a limited range compared to some of the other platforms.
2: How about, how about you, Manjul? What are your thoughts on these premium options in terms of EDOPS and multifocals for this kind of patient population?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, Shomal, I agree with you completely. Um, I want as much proof that they're central uh, central ten degrees is is healthy today, and the likelihood of it getting worse tomorrow is is low. Now we all lose a little bit of contrast sensitivity as we get older, right? So that that there, there's it's just gonna happen. Um, and if if we optimize the patient's uh, visual function now, and it slowly deteriorates over time, are they gonna be you know? that far behind. Uh, and are they going to have, are, are they going to notice that? Probably not, quite frankly. So we can probably get away with it, uh, get away with multifocals and eat off, uh, uh, options more than we think. But that being said, I'm still, I'm still pretty conservative as well. So I want, I want a pretty clean uh, bill of health today. I really love, uh, you know, multifocals and, and, uh, and even eat offs in, in my angle closure patients. Uh, because I know that by by we have good biometry and we're able to uh, predict uh, much better than we could uh, refractive outcomes, and we know we're catching the disease and we're treating it definitively. And so those patients they do great, uh, and I feel really confident that we're not going to lose any ground going forward. In this patient with a little bit of a lower hysteresis and an open angle uh, mechanism, uh, there is that small risk that things will progress. And so, you know, we have the long conversation, but, but again, a relatively clean central uh, uh, field and, and decent uh, macula uh, gives all the options for us. But I, I do really like, as Shamal mentioned, the sort of monofocal plus options, uh, and I, I, I do reach for those quite a bit. Those are uh, the B&L option is, is the one I typically use.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there's no no right or wrong, but you can't go wrong with a monofocal lens. Quality of vision is, is always going to be there, and you know, I think for me, I look at GCC. You now, the, the fact what I worry about this patient, and why I wouldn't do a multifocal personally, is just because of the fact that the patient has some GCC loss, and it's always telling you the ganglion cells are not quite there. Even if their fields look good, the ten two look fine hypothetically. You know, if they're, if they're losing some GCC, uh, that kind of worries me in general. But I also look at, like you said, Manjul, are the patients stable? What's the likelihood of them progressing over time? We just don't know. We can never know in glaucoma, of course. They almost all progress somewhat. But how likely are they going to progress soon, As you know, in, in, in the near future? What is the likelihood of them, you know, kind of being on drops, more dry eye issues? So, therefore, if they're on, like, three meds, even if they're mild, if you're doing a mixed procedure, you're probably going to be still on one or two meds. Then you're probably going to have some OSD issues afterwards as well. So, you know, those are the kind of things I look at. And of course, things like angle alpha. I'm not sure if you guys are in the angle alpha angle kappa, but if someone has a high angle alpha, also as well, I might say, you know what, it's not worth those multifocals or even maybe even an EDOF. off. I might go more for the for the monofocal patient. But just some facts. I know Shyamal mentioned the the percentage of reduction. You no know, contrast loss is something we see in, in glaucoma. And you know the traditional monofocal, the traditional multifocals, we had about a 20% loss of contrast. With the more recent iterations of the multifocals, it's about maybe twelve to fifteen percent loss of contrast with these lenses. And with the EDOFs, it's about five to seven percent. So, you know, they're not significant with the EDOFs, but there's still some, even with the EDOF lenses as well. So you gotta be aware of that. And and you know, with dry eye as well, dry eye significantly can reduce contrast, MTF curves as well. So you gotta look at all those different things together, which is why I think it makes it so tricky, no right or wrong answer as well. So for this patient now, guys, going back to what you were saying, what do you what would you do in this patient? So MIGS stent and what lens? So, so yeah, absolutely. We, I think we've resolved M- M- MIGS uh, with a stenting
3: procedure for sure. Um, you know, I, I I would have the conversation with the patient if 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 they're okay with the uh, you know, dysphotopsia and things of that nature, and eat off, uh, and again, progressive uh, risk of uh, contrast issues down the road, and ED off lens is totally fits the bill, but a monofocal plus type option would also be uh, high on the list for me as a, as a, they'd be tied and we'd have the conversation with the patient.
1: Sharma, what do you think? I agree with Manjul. I think the the stenting procedure will achieve the results we want with minimal risk and a very quick recovery. And then from a lens standpoint, you know, I would be comfortable with the Edof, but I would want to get the surface in as good a shape as possible. And definitely stabilize that with some repeat topography to make sure that it's as optimized as possible. Um, so that way we don't have any more issues from the surface interacting with the lens itself. Um, but then I would have that conversation, as Manjul mentioned, that, you know, we're not sure how you're going to stabilize over the years. But there are some concerns with these lenses, but they're minimal. And I think, like you said, Paul, I think we don't use these multifocal extended range options as often as we probably could in our glaucoma patients just because of our mental fear of them, but um, I think they can be more applied to many patients.
2: Yeah, I know, these are great points, and it, the idea of this, of this uh, I, I, I making sure that we optimize the surface of the eye before we do cataract surgery, in general, regardless of glaucoma. So are are there any key pearls, like one or two pearls that you guys can tell the audience about how you've optimized, what, do you, what are things that you can do to help get people prepared and repeat those measurements, like you said?
1: I'll sometimes do a drop-free holiday, and optimize the surface. And I think meibomian gland treatment is important, at least in our locality. Um, So we do have some of the meibomian gland heating apparatus that they can use. Um, But then we also put them on a pretty strict regimen and repeat their measurements prior to the evaluations. In addition to some light steroids, though she's already on the restasis. Um, But I think a drop-free holiday is helpful.
3: That'd be the only thing I would say as well, which is, you know, she's on a prostaglandin. We Even if we stop it today, it's still working for a month, maybe longer. So we got plenty of time to let the ocular surface cool off and get measurements to confirm before before that pressure starts to go up. And if we need a little bit more time, hey, we got, you know, there's there's good evidence that a second round of SLT can buy us a little bit of time, especially in someone who did have some response round one. And we have intercameral options now. So an intercameral uh, could be another way to really, you know, kind of um, buy us time, get the surface to be uh, cooled off, and uh, really be sure that we're, we're getting the best quality measurements.
2: Yeah, I've done, actually, I've done intracamma vanapross before, like even subcontent surgery. To get their eye calm down, get the muscle on the drop, especially if they're more moderate to advanced. I don't want to Take a chance. I don't want to stop their meds. I'll do that. Put put them on Diamox even if I have to for a couple of weeks. But but I think you're right. Stop the medication, especially for a mild patient like this, makes a lot of sense. Treat the MGD. The key for me is look for dry eye. And it's not even necessarily you have to do all these diagnostic tests. a lot of colleagues will say, Hey Paul, I don't have all the different diagnostic tools to do it. It's just listen to the patient. If the patient says my vision comes and goes when I blink my eye, when I'm reading a book and it gets blurry after five minutes, that's that's Acute service disease—that's tear film instability. So just asking the patients the questions and looking for it, I think you would be amazed of how much you can address and how much how many people you can pick up, like the Tratler study showed us as well. So just make sure that you don't ignore it and look for it, especially in your glaucoma patient, because I get—I can guarantee you. But 85% of your patients to 90% of your glaucoma patients have a surface of the eye issue. <laughs> it's just, even if you're in Arizona or you're in New York or Wisconsin, man, it's going to happen. Um, but that that's a big, big key for me as well. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's, before I give you the answer, of what I did for this patient, let's go ahead and just kind of take a look and see what our audience said in these t- different. Uh, social media platforms guys so we have we got IG we got Instagram here and so Instagram said that the procedure that the the, the audience said was cataract with the stent about 58% said cataract stent 22%, believe it or not, said alone. I think part of that's because the patient was a hyperope, and they probably thought, hey, you know, alone might be enough as well. But even in this context with a hyperope, I still think if you can somehow maximize the outflow, these people, even with narrow angles, there's a kind of a combined mechanism going on a lot of times. And just if I can open up the TM somehow with a stent or something else, I really think it's, a, for me personally, I feel better that I've done something long-term for that patient. But, you know, a few, there's about 13% said goniotomy or CPC or canalplasty, and some mixed makes about 8%. But Stenting and cataract was, was the most common one for sure. Now, if we look at uh, LinkedIn, it was a little bit uh, similar in terms of the uh, MIGS procedure, 73%, a little more bullish on the stenting, a little bit less for, uh, for cataract surgery alone, just 12%. Uh, so, and then about 10% for the canaloplasty uh, CPC goniotomy group. So looks like we're seeing a lot of these uh, colleagues out there agreeing with you guys, man, I'm telling you, it's awesome. And then uh, if you look at, I think, Twitter, it's pretty much the same thing, although I think here it was, um, yeah, there's about 25% said surgery alone uh, as well. So there's definitely a, a number of people who think just surgery alone for a hyperope will be enough as well. So what are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier if they're not angle, like their angle closure, they're obviously narrow anatomically. Just by opening up the angle, you're going to get a reduction. But, um, you know, if someone, let's say, has an open angle or hyperopic and they say they're, you think they're going to have some effect from the surgery, like four or five millimeters of mercury, do you think longevity-wise, there's a better chance we have with the stent for longevity, even if they both have the same efficacy initially? Absolutely. And we're, see, we're seeing that data. We see the curve starting to spread
3: uh, in the five-year horizon data. Um, and so while, while IOP does come down uh, with, with cataract alone, the medication you know, discontinuation is not, not as good and the, the curves start to split over time.
2: Actually, yeah, I totally agree, man. I think, and if you can see a lot of data on cataract alone within the first year. Yeah, then it starts to kind of rise a little bit faster than when these other procedures. Absolutely. So let's talk about the lenses now. So you guys are pretty much on the ball with what everyone else is thinking about stenting here. Um, so there was interesting. A lot of a lot of bullish people out there on EDOFs, man. There's some uh, about sixty in in IG world. The IG world, man. Sixty-three percent of y'all out there said uh, an EDOF or multifocal. Now we didn't break it down in, in the in the in the uh, polling because there's too many options otherwise. But uh, definitely some some bullish people there, 63% said they would do that. Uh, LinkedIn, it was about only 29%. So it's interesting to see kind of the different groups there. The IG people are definitely more aggressive, man. Uh, and then LinkedIn, were about 30% said eat off uh, multifocal, about 43% multifocal. And And actually, we didn't talk about LAL, light adjustable lens. I just – actually, we just – um, we just got the LAL recently. We're doing our first case next week. Um, so that's another thing to think about. Have you guys done any adjustable lenses at all? Do you guys have any access to that yet?
1: Yeah, I've done, um, we've done a few of them in Phoenix. I don't think it, besides if you're not sure about the refractive outcome, I think it may add value in this particular patient. Um, but I, because it's on a monofocal platform with Toricity, I don't think it adds anything besides what's already available. Um, unless the patient was really worried about their long-term refractive outcome and had prior refractive surgery, which I didn't see in the history.
2: Yeah, I mean, we also didn't talk about mo- uh, monovision. Doing like a little bit of monovision, like with LAL, or even just those you know, enhanced uh, monofocal plus lenses. Doing like a little bit of mini mono. Do you guys do a lot of mini mono for your patients too, once in a while?
3: Yeah, and that's that's a great way to leverage uh, the 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 um, pre uh, the uh, monofocal plus uh,
2: platform uh, there, and, and then you can really double down on the range. Yeah, I mean, and mini mono can be like point five, point seven five, even is enough where you can really get that intermediate to kick in for a lot of these patients. So that's definitely an option. And again, LAL can do that, but even the other ledges too as well. You can, um, you know, utilize a little bit of mini mono. Just tell them ahead of time. Just don't close one eye. <laughs> and even if they have, even they close it, they still can see the 20, 30, 20 you know, twenty twenty five with that point seven five, point you know, point five mini mono. So I've definitely done that a lot as well. Uh, and and on Twitter, uh, we also see here. Uh, about about a split between monofocal and EDOF. So about 41% said monofocal or, and 40, 41, 41% said EDOF. So uh, again, kind of a split there. So the IG group seems like the most aggressive into the multifocal uh, EDOF uh, world. So what what I did for this patient was an EDOF lens actually, believe it or not, but I did have a long discussion. Uh, I did tell a patient, look, there is some loss of contrast. You do have some little GCC loss here. Uh, so you know, I, I want you to understand that this is definitely not ideal. But she really wanted that intermediate range, and I said you could do mini mono. We could do all that. We didn't have LAL at the time, but we said you could do some mini mono. Uh, I think you're, you can never have any problem with good quality vision. We can always give you glasses if we have to. You know, you still have good quality vision. But she wanted that, and she did really well with it. And we did do a stent cataract as well for this patient. So you know, she's she's, she's doing great. She's off the PGA. Uh, she's still taking her cyclosporin topically because and I think it's important to tell patients: look, just because you're, you know, you are off the glaucoma drop doesn't mean your are dry eyes cured. You know, we we blame glaucoma drops so often for dry eye, but remember the population of patients that we are you know we're working with inherently have other risk factors for dry eye, <laughs> age, you know, postmenopausal, other systemic medications, et cetera. So it's important to keep telling them you're going to keep on this regimen, and most likely need to be on some type of dry eye therapy long term. But uh, it, she's definitely doing better, and her fluctuating vision complaints have gone down as well. Uh, but now this is real life cases, man. I love this kind of stuff. I mean, any any thoughts, any kind of parting thoughts for you guys about? what we talked about today, anything you want to tell everybody out there to to make sure they pay attention to?
1: I think um, just as a platform, MIGS adds a lot more value. And I think as Manjul mentioned, as the horizon study, we get further out. I think we'll see those deviations and more important things like the visual field index and things like that, as well as probably quality of life. Um, So I think it's important to include MIGS as an option. And I want to see what the demographics are of the voters on the different platforms, because IG did have high EDOF and multifocal and also had a higher rate of folks who would just do the cataract alone. And the LinkedIn had a higher group of MIGs, but then a lower group of EDOF. So most likely LinkedIn is older guys like me. (laughs) I don't
2: know who... IG man, they're into it. They're like, we can do it, we can make it happen. No, it's it's actually it's the beautiful thing about this is no right or wrong. It's about your comfort level, it's about educating the patients, giving them an understanding of what to what their expectations are. Look, I, I think I, I use a crystal lens on all these patients. I know a lot of people aren't using crystal lens as much anymore, but hey man, it's still a great option. Some monofocal lens, giving them some distance intermediate, and, and I still I still use that accommodating lens as well. So I think there's a lot of options, and there's no right or wrong. And that's the beautiful thing about what we're doing today and, and what we're seeing. It's just my my perspective is you know, we have a chance in glove coma to make a difference for the quality of life. And we have data now that supports that we are improving quality of life by reducing the drop burden. And we're actually helping prevent further progression because we're dealing with less compliance issues. And if you could add a little bit of some IOL, TORIC, astigmatism correction as well something else, you really can help these patients who are suffering. We used to give up on these patients many years ago when I came out of fellowship. It's a different world now. I mean, Manjul, you're, you guys are young, but I mean, now with glaucoma, it's like we do everything we can to maximize at, at any given stage their quality of life. Now, right? I mean, we have—that's what IG is all about, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the name of the game, right?
3: Listen to your patients, and 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 I think it's it's all of our responsibilities to at least know what's out there and have that conversation with them, um, and 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 just do everything we can to optimize. It's not just about IOP. It's 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 a holistic approach to to each individual patient.
2: Just want to say thank you to you guys for just spending the time with me, uh, just geeking out about glaucoma and cataract, refractive kind of stuff. It's just a lot of fun. And I want to thank the audience for, for t- kind of tuning in and listening to us babble. <laughs> it's, really appreciate that. But uh, keep up the good work, everybody. Keep pushing forward, having a great time and enjoying your patients, and doing the right thing. And uh, until next time,
0: thank you guys again. Thank you for tuning into this episode of GT The Podcast. If you have any feedback or topic suggestions, find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And stay tuned for more hot topics in glaucoma care on GT The Podcast.